This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we're incredibly fortunate with a patient and understanding Matt Fargo. We had a few technical challenges at the very start of Kurtz Fargo, and he's got a consulting firm with his good friend in Boulder, Colorado, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, the business and who he serves. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. So we started out a little bit about chatting about the business that you have Mm -hmm. and the clientele that you serve. Could you dig into that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, our our business likes to serve uh, emerging growth businesses, um, and that's a pretty wide range of of companies. But the common thread between all of those is that they're uh, growing and they need a firm that's helping them plan and strategize throughout the process. Um, We also work with individuals that are high net worth and ultra high net worth and uh, you wouldn't think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of similarities between businesses and individuals, but it turns out that the planning and the strategy that businesses want are the exact same thing that high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals want. So the way we've taught our people to think, uh, we, we've asked them to think strategically about things, and, and um, that's what they deliver to the clients. It's, it's not always the canned solution. It's not the obvious solution. Um, and we, we teach our people to think, and we teach them to consult. And so anytime uh, they're presented with a problem, their job's to go out and find the right answer, not a answer. As I'm sitting here, and, and let, let's say for sake of argument, uh, I'm a prototypical client, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a small business owner or whether it's a high net worth person. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular process or steps that you take th- to serve that marketplace. Mm-hmm. So... Can you describe a bit of your process when you're dealing with one, the entrepreneur in business, and then secondarily that high net worth, ultra high net worth individual? Sure. Um, you know, on the business side, I, I, let's just give an example of a you know a small startup business. I think that's those are always the, the interesting ones to to start out with. And in the Boulder community here, there's quite a few of those in a number of different industries. But you know, a lot of times, the first time we're brought into the engagement is by their their law firm. And the law firm or their or their accelerator that they're in will come to us and say, "We've got this company, and they have uh, they're just getting started. You know, what's the right organizational structure for them? You know, there's C corp, we got S corp, we got LLC, and and um, and so the first thing that we'll do, a lot of people will throw you know an answer at that, and the first thing our team thinks about is, what are you planning to do? Who's going to finance the business? Where are you where are your growth plans? Um, how are you going to raise money, um, and, and what are you going to be delivering to customers, and over what period of time? And so, uh, we'll understand all of the components around the problem, and then we'll start coming up with uh, the solutions that make the most sense. And so, you know, a lot of times, if you're going to be a venture capital or an institutionally backed uh, company, and you're going to go through an accelerator program, um, C corps can make a lot of sense, and and. You know, if you're if you're going to be a food and beverage based company, LLCs can make a lot of sense. You always got we got to be thinking about who their investors are, who the buyers are, all those types of things. So, um, and and what's the process look like? Well, a lot of times we'll meet with them and we'll just talk. We just say, tell me about your business. Tell me about why you guys are starting the company. And 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 it really it doesn't end up being much of an accounting discussion to start out with. We want to understand everything. And you know the, the way we look at ourselves here is it, we're an accounting firm, but we're really a relationship quarterback. And so, a lot of times they'll come in here and they need 
they might need a bookkeeper or an outsourced CFO or a, an attorney or a payroll company or a bank. Um, they might need an introduction to a venture capital fund or an angel investor. And so we sit at the center of a lot of those relationships. And, and if we can help make those introductions to folks, you know, then, then we're adding a lot of value. You know, when, it, when, when somebody comes into an accounting firm early stage like that, there's, there's not a whole lot of uh, work that we can do for them that's, that's billable, right? So you got, you got a tax return that you're going to do at the end of the year for an early stage company. That's, that's, a, small, that's a small task. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in my opinion, it is. And the, all the other things are, are what's really going to add a lot of value and build the relationship. Five years down the road, we might have a really good-sized client, but we started with it when it was just a little seed. You know, in, in, so we've got the, the approach that you use. And mm-hmm. how similar or dissimilar is the high net worth, ultra-high net worth mm-hmm. client of your firm from the, the business owner that you're talking about? Sure. So, it, you know, the, the planning and the strategy piece is, is not too dissimilar. You know, the, the issues that you're solving for are different, right? But uh, the process isn't too dissimilar. Um, you know, when, when somebody comes in, it, you know, usually they're coming in either pre-transaction or post-transaction. So, uh, you know, a very large number of the people that we're working with have had some kind of event or they're planning for some kind of event that's going to put them into that category. If we get them pre-transaction, um, and that's, that's where we sure love to start working with them, um, then there's a lot of planning that needs to happen around, you know, what's, when's the transaction going to happen? Have, have we done the proper planning to... Uh, not pay any tax that we shouldn't be paying and to optimize what we need to be paying. Um, and, and do they have the right relationships around them to optimize everything else? So, you know, if they're coming to us first, we're going to need to make sure that they're, uh, that they're in a relationship with a financial advisory firm, whether that be a multifamily office or, uh, you know, your typical, uh, advisory groups. Um, that's going to be important. They need to have an estate and trust planning attorney involved. Um, we need to make sure that they've they've got those houses in order, and then we talk about the accounting. Um, and a lot of times we're bringing a tax attorney to the table um, and to start thinking about what, what the situation looks like. And, and then, then we start gathering information and try to figure out where, where the opportunities might exist. And, and then we talk and we figure out what opportunities there are um, and we decide which ones make the most sense to go after, and 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 then we do that. Um, when somebody comes in post transaction, uh, there, there's a, there's a multitude of, of things that we we have to handle. It, it it depends on how much planning they've done in the past, what relationships they've had in the past, what kind of planning and strategy they've done in the past. But you know, a typical engagement on a year to year basis, if we're not planning for a transaction, is bringing a client in uh, mid year. Um, Maybe it's quarterly, depending on how things are changing for them. And, and change is really what drives how many times we need to be getting together. And, and it's, it's, it's putting a tax plan together. And a tax plan, in our opinion, is not just a tax projection. A tax plan is understanding what are the variables in somebody's world, uh, putting those into uh, a projection-type format. And then once we have a base case scenario, then we start playing with, uh, you know, what are the opportunities that exist? If this person has this set of variables and the result of this at the end of the year is going to be X tax due, 
what opportunities exist, and then let's start playing with those and running them through different models and saying, you know, you know what, if, what if we pay our taxes to the state before the end of the year? What if we implement a certain kind of trust? What if we, you know, on down the list of different types of things you can do, um, and then you look at what the net effect is in the current year and in the future years. And so it's, it's looking at things with all the data that you possibly can, and then letting that spark the conversation with the other professionals and, and come to the right solution. Sometimes tax savings isn't the best solution. Sometimes it's something that the financial advisor can do or the estate and trust planning attorney can do. But if we all get in one place, we can accomplish the best solution. Lack of surprise. That's right. Yeah. That's, and sometimes that's all everybody's looking for is just not being surprised at their bill. Maybe they, the end of the road of all the planning is, hey, there's nothing here. We're doing everything right, and here's how much you're going to owe in six months. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. Great. It is what it is. Right. You know, I, I, what strikes me about all of that, I think, for folks listening, is there's probably some misconceptions. And, you, and I would imagine that as you guys engage with some of these folks, you know, whether it's pre-liquidity event or post-liquidity event, mm -hmm. what are the typical misconceptions that you run across from these folks? Well, uh, it depends on the size of the event, mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of people build a relationship with an accounting firm or an accounting software package uh, early on, and then their life changes and they don't revisit that relationship. And I think you know, one of the misconceptions I think about our industry is that it's, it's, it's just data into a spreadsheet or, or a tax form. And so it's either right or it's wrong. And that's not really the case. There's, there's a lot of things that somebody can do to optimize their situation. And uh, I, think, I think it's a problem with the professionals that work in this industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think people don't think strategically. They, they think in terms of compliance deadlines and, and getting those documents finished as fast as possible. And everybody complains about how busy they are. Um, and, and so it, it's not a very inviting environment to, to ask your CPA questions when they're talking about how busy they are all the time. And, and so we try to change that conversation a little bit. But I, I, I think that uh, misconceptions is that, is that there's nothing that can be done. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny, and, and I think that's some of that's an educational process because mm -hmm. I think for many folks, you know, particularly the ones that are doing the software-driven version, mm -hmm. I mean, they don't know what they don't know. That's right. You know, and, and you know, shifting gears a bit, we talked a little bit about this when you decided to make the leap. Mm -hmm. And you went from the security of working for a larger firm. Mm -hmm. And you decided with your partner to start your own firm. Mm -hmm. If you could kind of take us a bit through that thought process and, and the things that were going on in your mind when you made that decision. Sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that were going on in our mind at the time. And, you know, that... One of the things was uh, there was there were some industries that we thought were being underserved. You know, uh, at the at the time it was the tech industry that we're really focused on. Uh, I had met the guys who started TechStars, and this is back in 2008 and nine when I was chatting with those guys, and and we were watching this this really exciting thing happen in the tech industry and in Boulder and in the Front Range, and we wanted to be a part of that and. One of the things that I noticed while working on some of these early stage companies at a large accounting firm is that um, they're, they're with the large accounting firm because there's a perception, and, and it's true, that we have the skills and, and the technical knowledge to, to get the right answer in a complex audit or tax return. 
for these companies. And these companies are actually more complex than, than their size would, would show. Um, you know, they, they have multiple rounds of equity, they have complex debt arrangements, they have warrants and options and all these other things, right? Um, but the problem is, is that at least in my experience, when you have a small job at a big firm, you assign your interns and your newly promoted folks to them. <laughs> and so did they get the right tax return and did they get the right audit? Yeah, at the end of the day, they did. But what, what additional value was provided by a bunch of interns and, and junior folks and, and very little value is provided. And the other thing was, is that a lot of these companies, they don't have CFOs. They don't have an entire 35th floor of the Wells Fargo building downtown thinking about their, their accounting and tax strategy and problems. And so um, we felt like we needed to have a firm that had those technical capabilities, but, but could deliver the service in, in a more effective way. And so that's, that's what we wanted to do when we started the firm. Um, and, and uh, you know, when we started Kurtz Fargo, the thought process was, uh, you mentioned job security at the time. Well, at the time, 2010, we're pretty solidly into the recession at that point. And, and our firm had implemented some salary changes for folks and had done some layoffs. And so uh, the security of a large firm, or the, at least the misunderstanding that that existed, was, uh, was pretty evident. And so the risk in my mind of going out and starting your own firm was not that risky. It seems risky, but what's the worst that can happen? You go out and get another job afterwards, just with a little less money in your bank account? Doesn't seem so bad. So you guys were going through this process and un unfortunately in the section that we missed, you were talking about basically day one or day two when you started the firm. Yeah. And I thought that that was a, an instructive story Mm -hmm. So if you would, let's revisit that story, if you would. Oh, sure. So, <laughs> so how, how did we start the firm? Well, we, you know, we took a weekend and we got six pack of beer and we went over to Chester's house and measured out his basement to make sure there was enough room for me to move in if the thing didn't work out. And, uh, <laughs> and then we built a spreadsheet and, and uh, we decided that we didn't think we'd go bankrupt doing this and we were pretty sure we could pay our mortgages. And, and so... Uh, we decided that we were going to do it. And I remember seeing our wives, they were actually pretty nervous. Um, but I think they were and very had, supportive as well. And you had a six-month-old. I did. You were I, highly uh, motivated. Yeah, I had a six-month-old at the time. Chester had, I, I want to say he had a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time or something in that range. And But lots of young kids, basically. And, uh, you know, we had, we had, you know, to start this thing, you know, starting an accounting firm isn't inexpensive. Uh, you got to buy software, and that's expensive. You got to buy research tools. You got to buy computers. You got to rent an office. You got to buy desks, uh, and that's all while not having any clients and paying attorneys to respond to letters <laughs> that your previous firm sends you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so nice of them to reach out. <laughs> yeah, my last firm sent me, uh, you know, put through a happy hour when I left. And the <laughs> anyway, um, so. Uh, you know, between all of those things, uh, you know, we, we, we drained the bank accounts to zero. We maxed the credit cards out. We, we put the 401k accounts at zero. And then Chester ended up pulling some money out of a life insurance account that his sister owned uh, uh, to, to try to fund this thing. And, uh, and I, I, I think the culmination of all that was that uh, when my wife went to the store and she was going to buy some baby formula for our six month old who, who, who had to have formula and uh, credit card got declined. And she called me and asked if there's 
if she can write a check or if there's something else she can use. And no, there wasn't. And if we wanted to be on the wall with the bounce checks, uh, she could do that. Um, and so she ended up having to go to the doctor's office and getting getting the formula samples for the next couple of days until that bank loan closed and we could get ourselves back on track. So we, we pushed it all the way to the edge and, and, and then got started from there. You know, yeah. there, there's a point where you've, you've gone through this knothole, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And so you come out the other side. When there was a point where you said, I think we've got something going on here. Mm -hmm. How long did that take you from the early days to really feeling pretty good about what you had? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I think we felt like we had something going from day one. Um, you know, Chester and I have very different personalities, but we, we have a very unified vision of what we wanted to create. Um, and we come at it from different angles. But, you know, we, we sat down and we, we put together, this is going to sound funny, but we put together what we call the list of things that suck about public accounting. And, and it was a pretty long list. And uh, that was one of the first things we wanted to focus on. Our, our goal was never to be a small CPA firm. We wanted to be something special. And, and we knew that it was gonna take people to build that. And, and there was, you know, there's a lot of things that public accounting does right, but there's a lot of things that, that we really struggle with as an industry and, and high turnover is one of them. Um, we talk a lot about work-life balance, but I don't think the people we are selling that to really understand what that means. And I don't think the firms that are talking about that are, are very uh, honest about what they really mean by that. And so, you know, we have this high turnover as a result. We pay well, but people end up working crazy hours and, and they get burnt out in two to four years or maybe a little bit longer if they're, if they're really tough. Um, but what we were trying to create here at Kurtz Fargo uh, wouldn't allow for that. And so we wanted to work with clients that wanted really smart, really technically adept people um, who could think outside the box, um, who could plan and strategize. And in order to accomplish that, I can't have a revolving door at the bottom of my organization. I need to have people stick around. And so we need to pay high salaries that were, um, that were equivalent to what the other folks are paying. Um, at the big four and, and the other high quality organizations that kids want to go to right out of school. Um, we needed to provide great benefits for our folks um, that was equivalent to or better than what the other firms were providing. Uh, we needed to have extremely low turnover in the organization. Uh, we needed to provide the best tools and the best research uh, capabilities. And that's, that's not easy to do, um, but we thought about it all in those early days, and then we started executing on that. And so I think that's, that's why we're so different. I, I haven't yet found a firm that operates uh, like we do uh, at our size with the kind of clients that we operate with as effectively as we do. I was actually out recruiting uh, last or two weeks ago in uh, Durango at Fort Lewis College, and I, I really like going to small schools because I, uh, I, I get to meet some really interesting folks. Um, and it was interesting as I was presenting our firm to the students, there were some other accounting firms also presenting to the students. And they had been talked to over the last few weeks by you know, a number of other national and, and, and large accounting firms. And it was amazing how excited the students were to go work for a firm in Boulder that works with the kinds of clients we work with, the kind of culture that we have. I showed them pictures of the inside of our office and this place is so different. You walk in, 
and it looks like you walked into the wrong office. Did I just walk into a tech firm? There's a bunch of Apple computers on people's desks. What's that all about? You know, why are people wearing jeans around here? It looks nice, uh, but it, it, there's this different environment. People don't look stressed out. Um, they're working really hard, but we, we've created something different here. In the beginning, I suspect that you guys had complete control of your staff. Mm -hmm. There was two of you mm -hmm. in the beginning. And at some point, you, you get to a size where you start going, how do we take and, and pass the culture? Sure. How do we ins you know, inculcate the, the, the culture to our folks? What was that thought process like? Yeah, culture's a tough thing. Um, it's not something you can necessarily dictate to people. You can't say, hey, this is what our culture is and, and you're gonna be that way. It, it's really a culmination of all the personalities in your firm and, the, and then and the personalities in your firm are usually some reflection of the people who decide who gets to work there, right? Mm -hmm. And and um, and they copy what the people at the top do, and so it's it's a function of uh, how you address the team, it's a function of who you hire, it's a function of uh, how you allow people to think, and um, you know from the from day one, one of the things we did as an early an early company which had very little money <laughs> at, at, at the very beginnings. Chester and I said that it's our job to take on the risk, not anybody else's. And so the, the first guy we hired uh, is, our, is our tax partner, Jeff Starkey you now. And, um, and at the time, um, we wanted to make sure that Jeff had all the benefits, the salary, um, all the pieces uh, to make it a, a secure place for him to be. And we, and we, we did that for every single person. And, and that meant that, you know, Chester and I took very little out of the firm until uh, we got pretty far along. It's probably three to four years into, into owning the firm before we really started paying ourselves back. But we wanted to make sure that people were taken care of at the highest levels before, before we took care of ourselves. And we do that even today. You know, bonuses don't go out until every single person in the firm gets paid. And, and I think that resonates throughout the culture. We, we, uh, we constantly look at what other firms are doing, not just in the accounting industry, because I don't think accounting innovates very much, um, but we, we get the opportunity to work with marketing and advertising agencies, tech companies, uh, natural foods and natural products companies. And those guys are really at the forefront of innovation. If you think about a tech company, if, you don't, if, you, if you're raising money from a venture capital firm, you're trying to find how to best utilize every dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what you're looking for is those benefits that have a higher value, a higher uh, perceived value to the employees than, than the cost. And so we look at a lot of those things and we try to implement them here. Um, you know, some of those things are simple, like uh, paying 100% for people's healthcare premiums. People have a lot, even though healthcare is expensive, the perceived value in healthcare is very high with an employee base. They really feel like you're taking care of them, and and we want to. Um, you know, things like uh, flexible Friday programs and and uh, uh, helping people with gym memberships and wellness programs and things like that. We're we're always taking in new ideas and talking about it as a team and and deciding what is the best fit. Not all of them work, and sometimes we do them for a little bit and then we shut them down. But you know, the goal is to create a really great environment that delivers for the clients. And the way you do that is by making sure that your people stick around, your best people stick around. We were talking about turnover. Yeah. 
one of the things that suck about public accounting. Yeah. Well, you addressed one of them. You've had extremely low turnover. That's right. Yeah, we've had one person leave the firm in seven and a half years, and uh, and about six months after she left, and, and uh, she asked if she could come back. And, um, and so and she ended up going to uh, a firm out east, uh, Deloitte & Touche, um, to move closer to family. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a in-house issue that she was upset with, but, uh, um, that's, that's been the only person that's left and, uh, we're pretty proud of that. You know, we, we were talking before about the culture and leadership inside the firm. Mm-hmm. For you, what do you think the key influences for leadership, you know, how did you learn leadership? Sure. You know, before and, you know, coming into this process. I had a lot of opportunities. Uh, you know, I think you learn leadership within your family. You know, my dad was, uh, he was the CEO of a, of a large company. Uh, I grew up in Alaska. And so, you know, we had, he's a pretty social guy. And so we had a lot of barbecues and parties at our house or other people's houses. And one of the things that was always really neat is um, that the kids didn't get sent to the basement or to the babysitter. A lot of us got to hang around those parties and those barbecues and interact with the business leaders and the uh, government leaders that were there. And and you get to know them as people. You get to know how they think, how they talk. Um, you get to get comfortable around people of influence and you know, that certainly was something that, that, that helped me. Um, I am an Eagle Scout, and, and so I was involved with Boy Scouts for a long time. I have two girls now, and uh, I was actually kind of excited to hear that girls can be in Boy Scouts now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if everybody's excited about it, but I am. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I was, as a 14-year-old, I got to work in the leather working and basketry area of a Boy Scout camp up in Alaska and uh, taught a lot of, you know, early leadership skills from some really great people who ran that camp. And uh, I got to work there for a number of years. I, I kind of graduated from Boy Scout camp to working for their high adventure program, which is essentially uh, a, a mountaineering group within the Boy Scouts. Uh, it's like Knowles or Outward Pound. So I got to guide trips for one to two weeks uh, at a time in the Chugach Range in Alaska with a small team. That was a lot of fun. Got to deal with a lot of really crazy situations, people sliding down ice slopes towards cliffs, uh, people falling down crevasses, cutting their legs and having to evacuate them out. Um, you get to deal with just, you know, leadership things mm-hmm. in, in a very unique environment. And then uh, when I came to college here at CU, I got the opportunity to join a club, an outdoor club that ended up turning into a fraternity. And that was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurialism. And I think there was eight of us at the very beginning of this, this club and, and called Colorado Quest. And, um, and we all became really good friends and we ended up joining up with a fraternity called Theta Xi and starting a fraternity on campus. And I think by the time I graduated, I wanna say it was about 40 guys and now it's the largest fraternity on CU's campus and still very successful. Um, but that was a unique group. It was a bunch of Eagle Scouts and, and uh, kids with good grades out of school and we wanted to create a fraternity that was focused on outdoor sports and and uh, high academic achievement and we didn't see anybody else like that so we built our own and uh, ended up doing really well that was that was a lot of fun I mean we'd had plenty of little black books of and lists of things that 
we wanted to do and planning and how to strategize. We were the little guy on campus, so we had to figure out inventive ways to recruit folks. And so we'd go buy lists from the university of every kid that got above a 3.7 average that was a male from from high school. I think they don't give those lists out anymore, but we would send a letter to every single one of them before school started. And we had a couple of nerds in our fraternity. So they built a website back in the late nineties and we'd send all those kids to our website and they'd sign a form and we'd bring them out to school a little early, take them rafting and we'd make them associates in the fraternity before they, uh, they ever met anybody else. <laughs> so kind of fooled them all. You know, I, I think about the seeds of being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know, and it, you know, if you were to look at the one or two things, you know, whether it's Eagle Scouts or it, was there a point where you said, you know, I, I'm, I'm clearly stifled or I want to be an entrepreneur, that, that spark, what do you reckon started that for you? I don't know that I ever had a, I, it always feels like it happened by accident to a certain extent, but I think it was always there. I always had something in the back of my head that said I wanted to start a company, but um, you know, I, I got the opportunity to work some some really great organizations. You know, in, in college, um, I'm doing this mountain guiding thing up in Alaska, and I got to work for an observatory one summer. And then I get an email from the college recruiting program at CU, and they said, "Hey, Pricewaterhouse Coopers is coming to town, and and uh, they want to talk to you because you're an accounting major and your GPA is above a certain amount." And um, so, honestly, I went into that that first interview. And I had a job as a mountain guide that summer in Alaska. So if I didn't get the job, I wasn't super concerned about it. So I didn't even bother to learn what PricewaterhouseCoopers did. <laughs> um, I literally went in there and I figured I've seen their name in the Wall Street Journal before. So this is probably a pretty good company to work for. And I just switched my major to accounting recently. And so I, I, none, nobody, nobody in my family is an accountant. So I, I didn't know what these guys did. And we had a great interview. Uh, we talked about Boy Scouts and mountaineering and all this great stuff. And I walked out and I thought that was fun. Got a call back a few days later and said, hey, you should come back for a second interview. And it's kind of off from there. So I got to work for this phenomenal company for four years and just work with some great people. And I've actually started to reconnect with a lot of people I originally interned with. Went there as an associate, got to work on some really cool accounts, Vale Resorts, um, Newmont Mining Corporation, a bunch of tech companies. It was great, Um, but I got burned out. And uh, so I ended up turning in my resignation, uh, I think it was the third year or so, right around there. And I remember being at my parents' house in Durango and talking to a guy who's a good family friend who's a partner at KPMG. And he basically said, Matt, you know, you're gonna really miss public accounting. You get to work with you know, the very top percent of kids coming out of college. That's why you got to go work for one of these firms. And if you go anywhere else, I don't think you're gonna enjoy it. And, and then he introduced me to this other firm, Cbiz Mayerhoff and McCann. And I, I spoke with a partner out of LA. They had done a big acquisition of a ton of small firms and mid-sized firms throughout the country. So they kind of had a cultural issue to solve. So we were building you know, programs around national training and technical offices and leadership within offices and all these things. So it was a really fun run for a number of years helping develop all these programs, which you take for granted at the big national firms. And so, you know, it, it was a little bit by accident. I went over there because somebody said, hey, you should check out this company. And and while I was doing all my accounting work, I got to also work on all these internal leadership programs. And then when that wasn't 
scratching the itch for me or I didn't feel like we were adding the kind of value to the types of companies I wanted to add value to, that's when we left and started Kurtz Fargo. But I, I don't know that I ever said, geez, I, I really want to be an entrepreneur. I should quit my job and do that. It never quite came up that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, in, in thinking about, so I think you said there's 22 people on board. Yeah, about that. We, we're kind of wrapping up recruiting season here, so we should end up somewhere in that range. And so, and you've got construction going on upstairs. That's right. And so you've, you've made the decision and there's room in the one upstairs. Oh yeah. And you know, as, as you We think can grow twice as big as we are right now in that space. You know, as you think about the, the thought process, we're gonna move, mm -hmm. uh, we're building out for growth. Yeah. What are your thoughts on key drivers for growth of your firm? That's a good question. Um, you know, we, we, we try not to be a heavy sales organization. You know, we, we, we try to do really good work um, with the best professionals and the best clients in town. And then we hope that those guys tell other people what we did for them. And, and so far, it's worked really well. I don't think we have have had a year where we've grown less than 30%. Um, and it's been much, much higher than that in, in previous years. Um, and, and that quote, I, I could be even incorrect about that number. It could be higher. But, you know, the, the drivers for growth, some of it's just just focus on the partner side is, is what industries do we want to be influential in? So early on, tech was something that we were really focused on, and we still are very focused in tech. And, and we made an effort to just show up we went to the events, uh, we met people, we talked to them, we try to be as genuine as possible. And, and that's not very hard, you just be yourself, right? And, and you talk about what you're interested in and how you can help people. And in and, and, you know, the tech industry is such a great industry around here. Um, I think people latch on to people being, being genuine and they say, I wanna work with that guy. Or, I wanna work with that guy's company. And we've more recently put a lot of effort into uh, the, uh, the CPG industry or the natural foods, natural products industry. Um, we've, we've spent a lot of time working with, with marketing advertising agencies, um, with uh, real estate development companies. And there's all these groups that we work with that we do an extremely good job at. And we have really deep experience there. And, and the growth is really driven by just telling people about it and making sure they know and making sure that we stay in front of people. There's, you know, there's, Downtown real estate here in Boulder is extremely expensive. We have clients in New York City that are paying more than us um, per square foot. Uh, not all of New York is, but there are some areas. And, and, but we choose to be down here we get, because we bump into the people that we need to be bumping into on a daily basis so we don't get forgotten. We don't want to move out to, you know, outside of downtown Boulder and have people forget about us. You know, it, it, personal relationships is how business works, and so we need to be down here. And so for you guys, you mentioned earlier that you and your partner had a common vision, but you had different skill sets. That's right. When you made the decision at some point that you said, I'm going to pursue the skill set that I possess to drive growth and your partner is going to pursue his skill set. How did you get, what are the different skill sets that drove that thought process? I don't know that we ever talked about what either one of us was good at at the time. We both we're both the kind of guys who just wanted to put the pedal to the metal on our career and we were going to figure out a way to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just happened to have offices next to each other at our last firm. And so we ended up talking all the time. And so I, I'd say at the very beginning, we weren't really good friends. 
we just knew there was something about that other guy that I probably should partner with him if I'm going to do something. Mm-hmm. And we got a, a couple opportunities to work together. But I, at the beginning, I don't, I don't think we were good friends. We just knew that we both had a similar vision. And um, I'm a big believer that good partnerships aren't um, two people that, should, that are similar. It's usually p- two people that are very dissimilar and they have complementary uh, skill sets. And so, you know, it's not unusual for Chester and I to disagree on an approach to a problem, um, but neither one of us disagrees about solving the problem. <laughs> it's just what's the right way to get there. And, and so it ends up creating a really healthy environment. And I think it permeates throughout our entire organization where we actually encourage people to speak up and challenge the status quo, uh, whether it's an intern all the way to a partner. And, and, um, and so, you know, what did we think about skill set wise? If you get into the details, you know, I, I'm probably a little bit more socially interested than Chester is. Um, you know, Chester is, is really good at sitting down and focusing on certain details. Uh, I talk before I think he thinks before he talks, um, you know, some of those types of things, but... <laughs> You know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about how you grew up in Alaska, uh-huh. and that I think there's many folks from Alaska that have a particular mindset, mm-hmm. and I think it's just part of the culture up there. Uh-huh. And you know, and I think about your comment is I speak my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that would be a common. I, I've been up to Alaska a few times, and I would yeah. see that as a common trait. Yeah. Um, you know, looking out into the next three to five years. What do you see as the the growth or evolution of your company? You know, we get asked that a lot, and it's it's actually it's hard to put your finger on because um, you know if you were to ask me, Matt, seven years ago, where would you be today? It, it, I, I wouldn't know how far we would have come. Um, and so to say where we're going to be in five years from now, I can say what we're planning to do five years from now, but I don't I don't know that that's actually where we'll end up landing. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the way we get places, um, we just try in our firm just to be, you, you mentioned people speaking their minds. And, you know, that's, that's been part of our culture from the very beginning. It's, it, it's just be real, be who you are and, and say what you think. And so it, it, it actually, there was an attorney that we worked with early on when we were starting the firm. And I remember coming in in my triple pleat slacks that I bought from Men's Warehouse that I wore every day to work. And, um, <laughs> and we're good. I, I have a visual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the tan shirt and the blue pants and, you know, all that stuff, right? In the, the frumpy sport coat. And uh, I remember walking into his office and Mark was sitting there wearing a Robert Graham shirt with cuffs up. And, and corduroy pants, and, and at the time he was the managing partner of a very large firm here in Boulder, and um, and I remember him talking about wearing jeans, and and how that could be a brand for us, and and so Chester and I talked at, at the beginning. We said, "Gosh, you know, is that going to be okay? We wear jeans to work. We like go visit clients wearing jeans, and Matt doesn't tuck his shirt in. What's you know, is that the right look? Is that what we really want to communicate?" And what we and we found is, you know, we don't want to be sloppy, wear nice things, but um, that's who we are. You know, we 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 like to be casual, um, but we like to be straightforward with people, and and we want them to know us for who we are. And so, um, and and we look different, and and I think that's memorable for a lot of people. You walk into a room and you've got you're pitching. Uh, 
a relationship to a client. And three different firms walk in wearing the same outfit, giving out the same color brochure, and you come in with no brochure and, and uh, sit down and start talking about what they need and, and show them how you work rather than giving a pitch. And you're wearing something different and you, and you, and you look uh, and you act uh, genuine. That's, that's been our winning solution since the beginning. Um, and I think I learned a little bit of that a lot from Alaska. You know, it's funny. Listen to you, it seems such common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, geez, ask somebody what they want. Do your level best to deliver what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, and take care of their interests. And you go, well, that would seem to be an obvious concept. Right. But doesn't seem to be prevalent. I don't know that a lot of clients truly know what they want because... Um, no, some do, but I think what people really want that they don't ask for is they want a professional to think with them about a problem. They want to come in and say, here's what I perceive my issue to be. What do you think? And I think a lot of professionals, whether it be legal or accounting or architecture, or, you know, you name the profession are really good at providing specific answers to specific questions, but they're not good at thinking outside of what the person asked. And so that's, that's what we try to change in the conversation when we're having it with a client is somebody comes in and says, hey, can you do a corporate tax return for us? And the answer is, yes, of course we can do a corporate tax return, but that's not really the question. The question is, should you even be a C corporation? What's your business do? Is that the right solution? Um, you know, it, it, what is your internal accounting function? Uh, do, do you have somebody on your team that knows how to do uh, bookkeeping and, and accounting? Do you need to be introduced to an outsourced CFO team or a controller in-house? Or you know, you, Sometimes the simple questions end up you know, exploding into something much, much larger than that. You know, as, as you look back over your career before starting your firm, mm-hmm. you know, we, we all hopefully have a mentor mm-hmm. somewhere that shows up what do you think the best piece of advice that you ever got from a mentor in the past might be? I've had a lot of mentors over the years, um, you know, whether it be through Boy Scouts or uh, in family or in, or in the fraternity. Um, gosh, I don't know the best advice that I've ever got. I had one manager at PricewaterhouseCoopers, a guy named Marcus, and uh, and I remember turning in my first my first work paper that Marcus was going to look at. And he looked at it and he kind of tossed it to the side and he said, Matt, is this your best work? And I said, oh, that's pretty good, right? And he said, well, if you're not willing to take this and, and go give it to the CFO of the company, then you shouldn't be giving it to me. And so that was always good advice is, you know, do your best, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about that in Boy Scouts all the time too. And so, you know, that, that, that was one really great piece of advice. Um, you know, Sam Fogelman, who was a good family friend and partner at KPMG, he's, I, I, I chalk it up to him for staying in public accounting. <laughs> I, I left PricewaterhouseCoopers, we're sitting over in Durango over a bottle of wine, and he's telling me about how great of an industry it was. And I honestly, at the time, was pretty sour on it. Um, and, and he made me realize uh, the special things that, that make public accounting great. Um, I've learned a lot from associates and, and interns as well. You, know, it's, you spend a little bit of time at a college campus and you see that spark in people that are excited about coming into a new industry and, and you realize, you know, 
gosh, can we can we hold on to that? Is there something we can do within our within our firm to to take that excitement about it and not crush it by making them do copies <laughs> for the first bit of their career and, and allowing them to maybe sit in a room with a client and and, and hear those things. So I've had a lot of mentors over the years, a lot of influences, but I can't say that any one particular uh, has been the most important. You've mentioned Boy Scouts multiple times. Sure. In the most recent ruling, yeah, where young ladies can now be in Boy Scouts. Yeah. Looking at that, and you've got two girls. Yeah. How do you see that? How do you see the Boy Scouts benefiting from that change? Well, I'm not sure yet. I, you know, that could get pretty political pretty quick, and I'm not a very political guy. Um, yeah, but you're an Eagle Scout. Yeah, that's right. And so I do always have opinions about it. And I usually share my opinions about everything anyway. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's funny because um, it was such a big influence on me. And, and, and I wanted to be able to bring that, the benefits that I got from that to my girls. And I, I've, I've been involved in fundraising for Scouts for, for a long time, even, even a long time after I had two girls and we weren't going to have any more kids. Because um, I just think it's such an important program, and I think it teaches leadership better than any other program that exists out there for young kids. Um, but I was always a little bummed out that it wasn't available for girls in some way. Um, and I don't know a whole lot about Girl Scouts, but um, and I, I don't want to make too much commentary about it. But my perception of it wasn't that it wasn't bringing the same rigor to the table that that Boy Scouts did. And so there's a number of times I actually sat down and thought about going out and getting the Boy Scout handbooks and some of the merit badge books and just going through them with my girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, t we talk about different things all the time at home that, that I learned there. Um, so what do I think about it? I, I don't know how they're going to implement it yet. It'll be interesting to find. I got to read about it some more. But, you know, if, if, if my girls can even, either, you know, even get just a little bit of a nugget of the benefit that I got from it, I think it'll be successful. But I think if they can bring, it uh, doesn't have to be that the boys program has to be diluted by girls being involved. I think, I think the program as a whole can be accelerated by girls being involved. I think it's going to bring leadership to more people. Um, I think they're going to have to be thinking about what's the right way to have girls interact with it. Maybe they have separate troops, maybe they have separate packs or dens um, in the, at the Cub Scout level. But I think the the lessons that scouting teaches um, certainly apply to, to both sexes. Um, and I think the way they teach it certainly applies to both. You know, I, I think about, I moved a lot, so I was, I think I, I stopped somewhere between Cub Scouts and whatever's next. Yeah. And, you know, and I think about my exposure to Eagle Scouts. I think they said 75% of the Air Force Academy is an Eagle Scout. Yeah. Pretty impressive as a testament to the value. Right. You know, and, and I think about the young ladies out there, and we have certain, certainly enough scandal in the news currently yep. about misbehavior. Yep. Um, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be a welcome additional tool for the young ladies. I, I, I can't see it being that way. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there that are upset to see change. But, you know, I, I can't think of a better organization to lead that change. That's that's what Boy Scouts always has been about. And that's what Eagle Scouts are all about. And um, to be able to to be able to experience small bits of leadership as a seven or an eight year old all the way till you're 18 years old and get the opportunity to lead people and to make, make mistakes. mistakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same time, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's some of the best things I learned was, 
you know, what happens when you show up late for work? Well, I learned that when I was 14 years old, probably my second work, week working at Boy Scout camp, and I got, I got read the riot act. But, you know, and it's, you know, yeah. and you think, and that's, I bet you, you can see that now. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's one of those defining moments. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears, you know, we're, we're coming to a close here, and I sure. talked to you to death. <laughs> um, parting advice, either for the business owner similar to you, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, or just um, broad guidance of something that might make a difference for the listeners. Well, I've been doing a lot of recruiting lately, so I'll, 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 I'll talk to the college kids first, and then, and then uh, maybe that'll bleed into entrepreneurship and business owners. But you know, one of the things I, I tell uh, people when I'm recruiting, and I think I have, I've had a unique uh, step through the accounting world, um, and, and so I've got to work for big firms and mid-sized firms and now a small firm, um, all providing extremely high-quality work. Um, but I get to see, you know, what you learn at each of those. And, and what I've, and people always ask me, you know, what's the best place to go? Should I go work for one of the national firms? Should I go work for one of the small firms, one of the big firms? What's the best place to be? And I said, well, you know, it really did. Go with, go with the firm that, that best reflects your personality and go with the group that, um, that's the people you want to be influenced by. And so I think that, I think that resonates from students all the way through business owners is if you surround yourself with, uh, with professionals, whether you're, if you're coming in from school, if you surround yourself with professionals that, that want to put their career pedal to the metal and they want to learn and they want to operate in a different way, I think you're going to learn a lot. And that doesn't matter if it's in the biggest firm in the world or little old Kurtz Fargo in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I think if you're an entrepreneur, and you surround yourself with the best professionals, not the cheapest professionals, not the most well-dressed professionals, um, not the ones that have the best advertising, but but the ones that 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 influence you and that you want to be influenced by. I think I think you can create a team that's really special, and uh, and I think that's the secret sauce to a lot of people's success. And, and you see a lot of the successful people surrounding themselves with the same people. Um, High quality team. That's right. I think that's the most important thing. Well, I can tell you this was a pleasure. I appreciate you taking time out of sure. your schedule. It's great to hear the story and the influences. Can't thank you enough. Thanks. You bet.